Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Kenny with you here for another episode of Democracy Sausage from the learned climbs of Australia's National University, ANU. Well, I say national because Australia is recognisable in every sense as a nation, right? Or is it? Sure, we sit at the southern extreme of the Asian region, but strategically, culturally, linguistically, we're seen as part of the Anglosphere, a cog of the Western Alliance led by the United States. Even historically, our links to the United Kingdom, from which our political and legal systems derive, are so strong today that we remain firmly, cloyingly pledged to its monarch. Its flag adorns ours. So outwardly, we project as a nation in our own right, but not without some difficulties. How about inwardly, our sense of Australia as our prime identifier? Here again, there are arguments both ways. The trend over recent years in both cultural and governmental terms has emphasised Australia as a unitary state centrally governed from Canberra. Our increasingly presidential political discourse has nourished this sentiment. In a few weeks, we'll be cheering on Australians at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Not Tasmanians, not Territorians, but Australians. But the pandemic has put the black ink back on our internal map. Premiers, rather than the Prime Minister, have become central to security, ordering state border closures, life-ordering lockdowns, and a kind of domestic xenophobia. Last week saw public brawling over which level of government holds final responsibility for vaccine choice. The stoush ended with the Labor states forcing a weakened federal government to halve the number of overseas arrivals, ordinarily a Commonwealth responsibility alone. Is this the Federation working as it should, or is it dysfunction? And how is our understanding of the pandemic, the restrictions, the vaccination program, and political authority framed by our media? Is the 24-7 focus on a small number of cases proportional or distortional? Is the sense of AstraZeneca as second-rate even dangerous, driven by too much media attention around risk? 
Let's ask some people who might know. Dr. Tracy Beck Fenwick is a senior lecturer in the ANU's School of Politics and International Relations and is also very pertinently director of the Australian Centre for Federalism. Tracy, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thank you, Mark. And Margaret Simons is Australia's most respected media academic. As well as being a Walkley Award-winning journalist, she is Honorary Principal Fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Margaret, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thanks, Mark. There's a lot to discuss here, of course. So let's start with the Federation, Tracy. What do you say uh, to that question of mine, is the Federation working or is it? are we experiencing dysfunction or high function? I'm going to answer with our classic answer that federal scholars always give about federalism. And the answer is that it depends. And it depends for who and for what. So it really depends on which perspective uh, you're, you're sitting on. In the pandemic management of the vaccine rollout, there has been a clear evidence of burden shifting and blame avoidance, but also of political behavior and decisions that are made to increase the credit claiming potential of various political actors. And I think we've seen this on public display quite a bit. And as you mentioned in the past few weeks, particularly with the vaccine rollout, I would say there also has been evidence of federal encroachment on states and territories. And the states and territories have reacted, whether it's legal or legal, there's this reaction from premiers that they're feeling like they're being encroached upon by the federal government. But obviously, to put that into perspective, as as both you and Margaret know, this pandemic has given premiers a new feeling of power. So Mm. before previously... They didn't exercise that power. They've been exercising that power. So now they're also reacting when they feel like that power is being taken away. So I think the answer to your question is that the current federal dynamics that we're experiencing in Australia is about power and resources. And I really, truly feel that it does begin with the Black Summer's fires. Really, you, you sort of go back to uh, the start of 2020 and the, and the bushfires rather than the pandemic itself. I do, because I think one of the big variables that put the premiers in that driving seat in the pandemic from the beginning is that they took that seat during the black fires in the summer. Mm, yeah, well, it, it was interesting that that moment because these two crises, national crises, have effectively abutted each other. And in fact, the coverage, I'm sure Margaret would agree with this, the coverage of the bushfire crisis, the various failures that occurred through that, and the trauma of it all would have extended for longer, would have dominated our media longer were it not for the fact that the pandemic hoves into view and and becomes the preoccupation that it's been ever since. So, and, And that had its political dimension as well. I've discussed on this pod a number of times now my, my view of, of it at the time, which was that um, Morrison really came to understand his own po- political mortality at that moment. He, he so badly bungled the kind of the governing and the PR, the politics of the bushfire crisis. And then suddenly he sort of finds himself, you know, centre stage with a new whole new crisis and a, and a major global one at that. And it was his opportunity to actually learn from that mistake and do it better. And right at the moment that he needed to do better for his own political skin, the country needed the prime minister to step up and do something. So I think it's quite interesting that there was that, 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 that was the sort of background. But as you say, then coming to that is the premiers as well. But I think there was more political learning there because in his absence, the the role was taken over particularly by New South Wales and Victoria then. And so the premiers took on a new role. But if I can use their first names, Dan Mm. and Gladys also Mm. developed a new relationship Mm. 
And because we didn't have a national cabinet then, as far as I understand from as much research as I can can gather on this relationship, which is obviously private, is that it was during the bushfires that they learned to pick up the phone and phone each other. And that is the beginning of what I would call executive federalism, which we'll mm. probably talk about the national cabinet, which is a mechanism yeah. of executive federalism. For the listeners, I am Canadian. Canada has always operated intergovernmental relations through that style of executive federalism. It has been rare in Australia. It, it's not nor it's not the normal way that political federal games have played out here. And so I start with the the, the Black Summer bushfires because that's when we see premiers picking up the phone and phoning each other and deciding before they take it to their cabinets, before they discuss it with the prime minister, what are we going to do? And they've continued that, I believe, throughout the pandemic, specifically in wave one. Dan and Gladys, Victoria, New South Wales, they started to have a little bit more partisan-based um, conflict, obviously, more recently. But if you if you look at the first wave, they were talking, I think they were talking daily. Mm. Um, it's, it's interesting, Margaret. You and I are um, older than Tracy, and uh, and 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 been here, uh, f- you know, for longer watching politics. So, I think you might say, I, I certainly would, that premiers have in the past. I mean, it's it's gone out of fashion in, in in perhaps the last couple of decades, but premiers have in the past been inclined to work in concert against the Commonwealth. The old premiers' conferences going back into the 80s and 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 perhaps the 90s, premiers would act together to see off uh, encroachment or um, or policy from from the Commonwealth or to force the Commonwealth to give them more money. So I'm not entirely sure it's as, as, it's as completely new as, as Tracy's saying, but then uh, it, it's certainly a different style now. Well, I think, you know, I mean, we've seen both things. One of the other areas I've been reporting on, of course, is the Murray-Darling Basin. Yes. And there you certainly see the states warring with each other and warring with the Commonwealth. I mean, it's a miracle that we even have a Murray-Darling Basin plan, really, Mm. and no surprise that it's now falling apart, which it still is, even in this new era of state cooperation. It still is falling apart, largely because of New South Wales. So, you know, I think we've seen both. But one of the things that really strikes me, and we're lucky in this, is that we have a very competent bunch of premiers at the moment. I mean, that's not to say that they haven't all made some mistakes along the along the road, but they're all reasonably good managers at the very least. And that certainly hasn't always been the case. In fact, I find it hard to look back. You might be thinking about this, Mark, and think of another period in which we've had premiers who, across the board, are really pretty competent and pretty good managers. Imagine if that wasn't the case. Imagine what a mess we'd be in. I think back to the 1980s, uh, a period there where, uh, and, and I guess people of a conservative political stripe would would contest this and, and some others as well, but there was a period when there was at least four Labor states and a federal Labor government. So, And, and, the, and some of those premiers were you know, very good managers as well. It's probably true to say that we have some very competent political operators as premiers now and administrators. Not not only political operators. I mean, I think that's short-selling it a little bit. I mean, that gen- they are good political operators and they are good managers. You know, that's that's a pretty – we're lucky to have that combination, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you, you might – I mean, maybe I am – 
underselling them a bit, but I think maybe you're overselling them a bit too because <laughs> it's not that hard to do populism and, and in a way that is that has been the ticket to popularity for premiers through this crisis. Uh, there have been mistakes made, of course, uh, and, and there will always be in, in, in a complex situation, particularly in a novel complex situation like we're in at the moment. But, you know, states have essentially sort of doubled down on, on the sort of political locomotion or force that they've got from parochialism, you know, from being very insular and saying, I'm going to protect Queenslanders or I'm going to protect West Australians. That's not that hard to do. It's, it's it, In a way, it's low-hanging fruit in a political sense. Well, yeah, but, I mean, if we go back right to the beginning of the pandemic crisis, I'm thinking here of Catherine Murphy's quarterly essay about the Morrison government's response. You know, what we know now, and I think all political leaders in Australia deserve credit for following the medical advice. That is the main thing which has marked out our path from that of other nations. So all credit to them. But at the start... Morrison was reluctant to take the kind of public health measures that we have now all become regrettably accustomed to. Mm. And it was Gladys and Dan in particular, to continue using first names, it was them in particular, but the premiers in the broad, that made it clear that they thought they were necessary and pushed him into it. Now, to his credit, he changed tack quickly, such that it's now sort of lost in the midst of this pandemic history. But, you know, that's that's not a small thing. That's not just mm. populism, Mark. I do think you're selling them a little bit short. Yeah. That is uh, the ability to grasp the crisis, to listen to the experts, not only the chief health officers, but also people like the Doherty Institute, to observe what's happening overseas and, as you say, to act together to push the, the Commonwealth, in this case, into action. That's quite considerable. Yeah, no, look, I think you you make a very persuasive point. Now, Tracy. You've compared uh, Australia with other countries. That's what you do as a scholar. Our, our system is, uh, what is it, described as competitive federalism. No, I don't think it is competitive federalism. No, but it's described as such, but you, you, it, you're calling just, it a, a... No, it's been described in the media <laughs> in a negative sense. And, and so I just wanted to build on that and also Margaret's point that the ability of the premiers to have that role, to take a first step and make the right decisions is really the essence of federalism. I mean, for me as a federal scholar, and I know mm. the public, especially the media and the public, I know I know they don't see it that way because federalism has become Scott Morrison and the, the Commonwealth government and some of the premiers. But I would say the public more than anyone, it's a scapegoat, right? It's because of federalism that we have chaos. But as Margaret said, compared to other countries, we haven't had chaos. And I think the question we need to really ask and the question that, you know, again, as a comparative federal scholar, you ask is that it's two questions. How do we, how are we performing? Um, are we performing and functioning better as a federal system than we would as a unitary system? And I think Margaret's answered that question in both, and Catherine Murphy did in both the Black Summers and in the beginning of the pandemic. If we wouldn't have had premiers who had the ability to have that power and take that role, the outcomes would have been worse in both of those situations. So, you know, strike one for federalism there. And Victoria is the the, the sort of gold standard exemplar there, isn't it? I mean, if if we if we weren't if we weren't jurisdictionally compartmentalised, if I can put it like that, then you know the, the the lockdowns that occurred in Victoria, the restrictions which occasioned quite a lot of criticism from Canberra uh, at the time, 
they wouldn't have occurred. If, if it had been up to Canberra, they would not have occurred. And it was the fact that Victoria was essentially sealed off from the rest of the country when it had, you know, fairly high levels of community transmission that, uh, that it was able to be contained and managed. Yes. And, and so that, and, and I guess that's what I mean in that sense, that's competitive federalism in the sense that you've got, Within federalism, the whole idea is to have competition. So you can have competition between states and you can have competitions between the state and the federal government. And there, there it's positive in the sense that you see somebody's like, okay, they're going to take the lead. They're going to make the right decision. And normally when it works, then it sticks. And that's what we saw in this case was that the lockdowns and the elimination strategy worked. So as Margaret said, Scott Morrison, he came into line and then he took that kind of national leadership role in the cabinet, which was really already supporting decisions um, that the premiers had already taken. But normally I wouldn't classify Australia's competitive federalism because it is so centralized right. and because the Commonwealth has such fiscal leverage over the states. Uh, it tends to be classified as either centralized or coordinative federalism. Competitive federalism is really what you would see more in the US or in Canada and Brazil, where you really see divided government. And so you really have an out, you have more really divided authority over who does what, because we have so much overlap in Australia. We, we have a, a large requirement for these coordinative mechanisms, which is really in essence, what the national cabinet is, which was also politically ingenious to, at that moment when the states were starting to take a role, I think the idea behind national cabinet was like the Commonwealth has to be involved and national leadership is expected. So let's create this new mechanism where we can all sit around the table and, and, and talk to each other directly without, you know, as people have noticed, without bureaucracy like COAG. Yeah. The other term you've used, though, in some of the things you've written is coercive federalism, which I suppose is a pejorative version of all of that. How does Australia uh, shape up against that descriptor? Because, as you say, the Commonwealth has so much power over on the fiscal side that it can, you know, holds the whip hand over the states in many respects because of its income tax raising power, for example, which was ceded by the states in the Second World War. Yeah, so I, I definitely think we are seeing, and again, uh, we need to distinguish between that that first wave, which was really about elimination. Mm -hmm. I think the elimination strategy was always going to be about state and territory leadership because they have the control to shut their borders down. And they also have the control, as my colleague Alan Fenner likes to always remind us, to open them, and that's totally up to them, which the politics comes in more because they got re-elected and have a lot of support for keeping them closed, which goes beyond the advice of medical advice. Um, but definitely in, in, in what we're moving into now, which I, I've noticed everybody's talking about this transition we're doing between the elimination to the suppression strategy, I believe in the suppression strategy, which includes the vaccination rollouts, we are seeing coercive dynamics. And as you said, this is a system where the prime minister has a tremendous amount of federal and financial power, and he can use this power to coerce the states and territories to follow his lead and his directives over who should be vaccinated, when, and with which vaccine type, which is what we've really seen happen last week. Margaret, What's your sort of sense of the direction of this? I mean, bearing in mind what Tracy just said about, you know, mm. how Australia's can be described, it's the particular, I, I suppose, the politic of, of power between the, the Commonwealth and the states. People like Greg Craven, constitutional lawyer, former vice chancellor of uh, Australian Catholic University, has described Australia as the most centralised federal system in the world. 
uh, or mm. federation in the world. And he says that really, in a sense, the states have been on the back foot and going sort of going backwards really since federation. Do you think that's true? And has this changed? Has this has this crisis? Changed that or accelerated it? I think you know too soon to say really whether it will, the change will be of long standing, but I think it's at least possible that it's changing. Obviously, we have an awful lot of centralised power, mainly fiscal power in yeah. Australia. But when it comes to land use, for example, or water use, both of which are you know hugely important, the Commonwealth is actually pretty powerless unless they can bludgeon or persuade the states into line and you know that's often done just by opening the checkbook of course and you know some pretty cynical deals have been done around that but it's amazing the number of times where the commonwealth really is stymied without the states and i guess the question is whether the states have found their power and found their authority through this crisis and whether we will see more of that or whether as premiers change over, maybe to a less competent bunch or maybe a better federal government, you know, we might see that shift again. But one thing we haven't talked about is this so-called national cabinet hmm. because an awful lot of the questions that, you know, we might want to talk about, we actually don't know the answers to because national cabinet is closed, freedom of information requests for its minutes have been denied using the cabinet documents exemption. Those cases are now going to court and eventually I suspect they'll go to the High Court, which will have to decide whether National Cabinet actually is a cabinet. I don't think it can be and the constitutional lawyers I've spoken to say it can't be. You know, these are premiers, the members of so-called National Cabinet answer to different parliaments and the idea that it's a committee of the federal cabinet is, is you know, quite a confection, really. So questions like, for example, quarantine, which, as we all know, is a federal government responsibility, but way back in March, the states agreed to take it on or to help out. Oh, sorry, I think it was later than that, wasn't it? It was more like, uh, was it March or June? Anyway, whenever they did, the states agreed to take it on. And we heard Anastasia Palazek say the other day, oh, we agreed to help out for a little while and now, you know, it's too late. Well, we don't know. You know, the minutes of that meeting haven't been made public as they would be if it was, for example, Chogham. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the so far untold stories of this pandemic is how did the states get lumbered with it? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. I noticed Palaszczuk the other day uh, in in respect of the the blow-up that I referred to in, in, in the introduction. She said this was over the question of, you know, whether under 40 should go see their doctor and, you know, Morris encouragement for them to do it after a Medicare number and indemnity had been provided to GP. So, you know, extending AstraZeneca. And, and Palaszczuk was quick out of the blocks to say this was never discussed at National Cabinet. All that was discussed at National Cabinet was, it, you know, it was just reported that this indemnity was going to be provided to doctors. So that didn't sound particularly confidential to me. It sounded like, you know, just another meeting of 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 executive leaders of premiers and prime and the prime minister as as you said it it, it really does raise and and demonstrate this this difficult unknown question as to whether this is a cabinet or not or just a it is a constitutional issue but hmm. certainly the constitutional lawyers I've spoken to say you know it, it definitely isn't a cabinet and we've even seen for example while um, Scott Morrison was either overseas or in quarantine you know we've seen senior bureaucrats give us the media briefing after cabinet. 
I mean, you know, that never happens no. <laughs> usually. So I think that that, you know, eventually the FOI cases, uh, one from Senator Rex Patrick, one from uh, Shadow Attorney General Mark Dreyfus, you know, they will eventually make their way through the courts and we will have a decision at a senior level on where the National Cabinet is correctly described. And then the whole secrecy issue will arise from that. We'll either be waiting 30 years for the documents to be released or maybe we'll get a bit of a hint earlier. But I think there are some really important questions here, particularly around quarantine, given that all of our outbreaks have been leaks from quarantines one way or another. What did the states agree to do? How did they agree to do it? And why is it that the federal government has been reluctant to move to purpose-built facilities? And what have those arguments been inside National Cabinet. I hope that we will know the answer to those questions before 30 years have gone. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And they're really, really interesting and important questions. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a verisimilitude about uh, Palaszczuk's comment about us help, states offering to help out or agreeing to help out with, with quarantine in the sense that at the time, if you, if you cast your mind back 12, 14 months ago, it was pretty much inconceivable that we would still be in lockdown with their international border closed in July of 2021. That was just not thought about really as a, that was kind of to, to think in those terms was, was just seen as, seen as kind of doomsaying, you know, the, it was, it was expected that this would be managed more quickly and, and more effectively. I'm not saying that it has been managed ineffectively, but it, the global situation has done what some, epidemiologist warned of doing you know there were going to be second waves and third waves and and we've started to see those but yes. it's pretty clear the states initially i think we can say it's pretty clear the states initially agreed to do this because it seemed very temporary and because it was an emergency i mean here in yes. victoria we've had a whole inquiry into how it happened and basically our system of hotel quarantine which has since been completely reset but it was set up in about 36 hours or less yeah. uh, from the National Cabinet decision to the first arrivals. And, of course, as we now know, it was poorly poorly managed. Mm. And that's part of, part of the responsibility for the second wave lies there. The rest of it lies in, you know, decades of underinvestment in public health, meaning our contact tracing wasn't up to scratch. Both of those things have been substantially reset. But, you know, I can understand, given the states are the ones with the operational responsibility, and it seems to me this is another example of, okay, maybe the Commonwealth has the power and the whip hand in terms of money, but what can it actually do if the states yeah. aren't on hand? Uh, in this case, I suspect while it was a federal government responsibility, the reality is the Commonwealth couldn't do it. We've seen, again, with the vaccine rollout where the Commonwealth tried to do it through GPs, and it was really only when the states came up and started running the mass vaccination clinics and so on that we began to see any sort of uplift in the rollout at all. That's right. There's, the, the Commonwealth just doesn't do service delivery that well. Yeah, no. what we seem to be discovering is, yes, the Commonwealth has this power, but when you actually need something done on the ground, you need the states. And, you know, that is obviously part of the background for why the states agreed to do quarantine. And now, of course, they're saying, you know, enough, we need the feds to step up. But what can the feds actually do yes, without well, the states? That's right. And look, let's take a quick break and we'll continue this discussion in a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Tracy, just before the break, Margaret was uh, asking that very good question rhetorically. You know, what what can the Commonwealth do uh, and what, why were things done the way they were done in terms of, you know, the decision for hotel quarantine? And, and the other question she asks, which I think is a really interesting one, is what's behind the Commonwealth's reluctance all the way through this to uh, go for dedicated quarantine facilities, fresh air, cabin-based quarantine facilities uh, outside or, or close to airports outside the metropolitan area. I mean, it, it just seems so odd given how much it's needed and also how much money has been sloshing around uh, once they what the decision was taken to deficit finance this and to get the economy through. It just seems so odd not to go the extra yard and... And build these facilities, and and they even now when they're talking about doing it, they're talking, you know, they're, they're talking about getting them up for some time in 2022. This should have this should have been planned last year. That's a specific policy question that I I don't know if I have the details to answer because again, as Margaret says, the decisions and the discussions that happen in national cabinet aren't public. Yeah, we just don't know those. So, answers, so we don't really. know. But I would like to defend the national cabinet a little bit, but I won't defend the name. It's not a cabinet, and the decisions that are made within it are not binding, and they do not have to have um, full agreement between all the actors. And again, when I was referring, which you would say, so the defining characteristics of a cabinet, right? Yeah. So we are. We know, the, as, as Margaret said, the constitutional lawyers, you know, especially Cheryl Saunders, has come out time and time and time again and said this is not a cabinet and the name is really misplaced. It's a political statement in itself, that name. Well, that's what, when I was referring earlier to Australia doesn't have formalized mechanisms of executive federalism, that was what I was referring to. Yeah. So in presidential systems and other more robust or stronger federations, which means more decentralized, yeah. right, where subnational levels have more power to veto government, central government action. So subnational power is all about the ability to really disrupt the central government and to veto their policy decisions to use that power. And in this situation in Australia, we don't normally do executive federalism. And what I mean by that is it a formal mechanism like the national cabinet, which we agree the name doesn't work, where we see federalism in action, federalism in action beyond constitutional legal parameters, federalism in action is political dynamics. It moves and it's not static and it's not always formal. It can be very informal and you can make de facto political decisions which are based purely on, I give you my word that I'll help you. Mm. And if I don't actually, if you do something that annoys me and I don't like what you do, I can pull that back and say, you know what, we made a deal and you didn't, you didn't stick to your part of the bargain. So this to me is really the, the politics of federalism. And again, in in other, obviously in presidential systems, but also in Canada, where you have much stronger power at the subnational level, meaning the federal government can't do anything without the provinces. 
we see these executive federalism all the time. And so I think we're a little bit more comfortable about it. And as Margaret says, it's always private. It's always closed. You know, Canada repatriated in one of these meetings, made a decision to repatriate the Constitution without Quebec, and there's no minutes and nobody was there and it happened over drinks at a golf course. This is typical. <laughs> you know, you know, as a Canadian, I'm like, That's this is this pie. is totally normal. But I, I think to answer your question and to bring back what you asked for, the reason in Australia we never saw this was the Commonwealth didn't need to look at the premiers and the territory leaders as equals and to make bargains with them because they had enough power yeah. that they didn't need to make these kind of political deals with them. They didn't need a back, they didn't need a closed venue where they're going to sit down and go, okay, who's going to do this? And I'll pay for this if you do this, but I'll only do this if you do this. This has never been necessary. And so I think for the first time, what we're seeing, and again, it starts with one, with the disaster risk management that we saw with with increasing not just the the bushfires but flooding and we're going to see more and more of it in Australia we know that tied to climate change and then we have the pandemic so all of a sudden we're in the situation where we have policy problems in Australia that need to be solved and the only way to solve them as you said because there's jurisdiction here but not jurisdiction there the commonwealth regulates GPs and provides an indemnity but public health is so the only way they can resolve this is in these executive forums where they sit down together without a record without legislative power they make decisions and then they take them back to their cabinet and they try to convince them that what they're doing is right and sometimes it works and other times it doesn't so to me, this is totally, this is federal politics at its best. Yeah. <laughs> Margaret, did you did you have a sense, you know, going back to that period in the first half of last year as the National Cabinet comes about and these these politics changed, did you did you have a sense that um, the part of the a good part of the federal government's motivation was just simply that this was a health crisis? Health is very firmly a state's responsibility. And the state, the evidence started to pile up quite quickly that, People wanted their state governments to act decisively, as you were saying before. They they certainly did that. I mean, I guess my argument was simply that it it, it turned out to be very popular, and it's not so hard doing unpopular things. People wanted security and safety. They wanted their their governments to act decisively and to see off this threat. And and re reasonably enough, Mark. You know, I mean, oh, yeah, no, it was, no, it's yeah. not an illogical yeah. thing. It was mm. perfectly logical, and 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 in fact, I've bristled at the idea that Australians have just turned out to be an obedient lot. I think it was actually we were quite logical about it. We were quite mm. rational about it. We wanted we could hear the epidemiologists just like the uh, the ministers could. We we actually had a lot of the advice playing out publicly exactly. that was playing out privately, and people could arrive at their own conclusions. So, but I guess what I'm asking you is, what was it? Was Morrison's thinking and 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 Greg Hunt as well, I suppose, and the federal bureaucracy were were they just thinking, well, look, we need to play ourselves back into this game. You know, we need to be more yeah. strongly involved here. And and there was obviously a national coordination role. There were there were questions of the international border, which, to be fair to the Commonwealth, it acted on quite early. But uh, nonetheless, there was the National Cabinet was a way of bringing the the the, the theatre that was happening in all of these other states into that into that national realm as well. It's hard to know because you know this government doesn't background brief or indeed leak in the way that you know Canberra-based journalists are used to. So you know that sort of 
visceral understanding that you used to be able to get because people were talking to you, you know, has been largely absent. So it's hard to tell. But I actually thought those first few weeks, other than the decision to close the borders, which, as you say, came early and, you know, looking back was good. But mm. remember, it was to China, not to America. And Indeed. It should yes. have been both. Uh, it's a very good point because a lot of infection was coming from America for some time after that, wasn't it? Yeah. So other than that, those first few weeks seemed pretty chaotic to me. It was very hard to discern a strategy. So I didn't get the impression that Hunt and Morrison were sort of sitting back thinking, oh, this is health, it's all for the states. You know, we had no public information campaign, for example. You know, yes. I remember there was a period of some weeks there when Norman Swan was basically the public information campaign on the ABC, which, you know, he was speaking into a vacuum. The government got quite annoyed with him, but he was basically talking into a vacuum because the government wasn't talking. Yes, and Morrison was talking about going to the football and and, yes, and, and exactly. these kinds and of things. Yes, exactly. And even Brendan Murphy, you know, being spotted shaking hands on TV, you know, when we weren't meant to be doing that. That's right. And, and they both firmly opposed masks for a long time yes. after uh, masks were being recommended by some epidemiologists and infectious as though disease that, experts. as I understand it, was a is an international issue to do with the sort of um, reluctance to acknowledge airborne transmission, which I don't quite get, but it's some paradigm in in epidemiology about airborne transmission, which I think has now, you know, shifted and yes, it's accepted that it's airborne. But, yeah, no, I mean, I didn't get any impression of any strategic thinking in those first few weeks. And, yes, when National Cabinet, and I agree, I absolutely agree that I think National Cabinet, although misnamed, um, is a good thing, but it was when the first National Cabinet meeting happened and the Premier's you know, got to exert their pressure, I remember a feeling of distinct relief. I thought we were really going to mess this up. Yeah. And it was after that first National Cabinet meeting that I thought, oh, thank heavens, you know, we've the tyres have hit the road, you know, we might be all right. Yeah. More recently, of course, it's been more fractious. But I remember in those early months, I was actually quite hopeful. I was writing about the Murray-Darling Basin at the time, and I was thinking, God, if only that issue could go to a National Cabinet, we might actually be able to get more constructive agreements because, of course, Chogham has been the place where good ideas go to die. Yeah. But I just want to, you know, I don't think this is entirely new. I mean, if we think about housing policy, for example, hmm. and better cities back in the days of the Hawke-Keating government, you know, which really got involved in, in cities, which is usually seen as a state responsibility, they had to get the states on side. Then Howard basically dropped the ball on that, didn't even have a minister for housing. Then the Rudd government picked it up again, of course, and the housing was a big part of their election campaign. And again, they had to get the states on board. They had to ha get a national housing agreement in order to be able to advance policy in that realm. And so, you know, there has always been this sort of push-pull when you want things actually done, you know, when you want a house built, when you want a hospital to jab someone, you know, if you want things actually done on the ground, I do think the states have significant power. And maybe we haven't seen that clearly enough to date. Maybe the states haven't seen that clearly enough. Yes, it's an interesting it's an interesting question. And uh, just watching that national cabinet play out, I think the, the other dimension of it that you know we've we've all discussed before, I guess, but um, it, it was the the change in the political atmosphere once we saw a high level of cooperation between the states and the Commonwealth. There was a sort of a politics itself, you know, the combative side of politics took a back seat to joint problem solving, to a feeling that our leaders were in fact sitting down, putting aside their differences and trying to work out what is the best way forward here. That yeah. in and of itself, uh, just that that kind of mindset 
was highly agreeable to voters, and we saw, um, you know, indexes of of trust in politics and institutions they suddenly all rebound. From they, that. All they all benefited from that, and now. Uh, you know, again, too soon to say, but the question I would ask looking at the polls this week, to the extent that we can still trust polls, and I do regard them with a fair bit of scepticism, but, you know, that would seem now not to be breaking Morrison's way. Well, yeah, and this is interesting because this sort of takes us into the, the other dimension I wanted to, to just have a, a bit of a chat about, and that is the, the, the media frame, uh, the role that media have played in this. Margaret, you've written about this uh, recently and uh, raised some, I think, pretty tough questions for journalists to think about in terms of, you know, the right to know and uh, the the way in which reporting happens about politics. You've yes. made the point, for example, that just because a politician says something doesn't shouldn't automatically mean it gets reported. Well, that this is a bit of a paradigm shift, I think, in journalism, and we saw it in the States, first of all, I think, where they had a president who was spreading misinformation, mm. dangerous misinformation, as it turned out. And some media outlets, and you know, you and I can imagine as journalists, Mark, what a difficult decision this would have been, decided not to report him when he was telling lies or decided to report him but say this is not correct information. Mm. Now, that's a huge decision with the president of your country, absolutely huge. But I think, you know, we've seen that, you know, I think journalism is or perhaps should be in the middle of a paradigm shift around here. On the one hand, let's say the the side effects from AstraZeneca are real and serious but Mm. very rare. If any media organisation or any government covered that up, A, it would almost certainly come out, and B, it would destroy public trust. It would be terrible. Yes. But on the other hand, do you need to put every single case of clotting on the front page? Do you trust those decisions to journalists? You know, Do they have the right as unelected, largely unaccountable players to make those decisions? And then if you go to the sort of fringes, if you look at Sky News, for example, I was watching it last night, you still got Alan Jones saying hydroxychloroquine is an ignored treatment for COVID, which, you know, all the medical <laughs> evidence says otherwise. You know, so how's the, you know, the average punter? Yeah to make their mind up. So I really think this is, and it's hard to do in the middle of a crisis, but I really do think that question of journalists actually making judgments about what to report and how to report is something we're going to have to think through. It's scary because if, for example, you decided not to report the serious side of effects of a vaccine because you see the greater public interest as lying in not encouraging vaccine hesitancy, you know, you're withholding some information from the public and that goes right against every journalistic ethics. So we've got to think it through, I think, and it's hard to do. One of the things that worries me about journalism in this country is we don't have the forums to do that. There are no forums in which journalists get together and talk through the ethical issues in a sort of good-hearted way. Maybe we need a national cabinet. We certainly need a national debate on that, but it strikes me, uh, Tracy, that journalism's been asked, I know this isn't in, isn't your academic specialty, but, but just uh, thinking as an educated person, I mean, journalism is confronted with those quite serious sort of ethical, practical questions, and like everyone else in the crisis, is sort of confronted with them in real time. You know, as I say, this is a kind of a been a, a global crisis and one that, uh, you know, has uh, has sort of novel characteristics for, for everyone living, really. Um, you know, none of us have been through this kind of thing. And it is it does really go to questions of how 
democracies, how liberal democracies work in particular. You know, we we think the free flow of information is absolutely fundamental to to a liberal democracy, uh, and journalists see themselves as you know critical in that in that process. But things can be sensationalised, fears can be ramped up, stories that have no basis in in fact can run as if they do in that circumstance as margaret was just saying we saw that happening in the united states so so graphically and there were still some, close to 75 million americans wanted to put trump back in the white house for another term so it's a really interesting question for societies to deal with and for the profession it is and I, I, as you said i'm not an expert on australian media at all it's it's your guys's terrain but you know, in in terms of a de- from a democratic perspective, it's all about having diversity of voice, and and I seem to understand, at least in your mainstream media, there's there's really partisan backed media. And again, you know, Margaret mentioned the approval ratings, right? The public expected national leadership. There's a strong Australian. I find it very Australian. It's not. I'm now you know re- moving into a cultural kind of perspective, but there seems to be this strong Australian expectation for national leadership, even as you said, if it's something like public health, which is outside of Commonwealth jurisdiction, it didn't work anymore. It didn't work anymore for Morrison in the media to say, you know, I don't hold the hose, mate. It's not yeah, my jurisdiction. Yeah right? Didn't work with the public. And so he started demonstrating his national leadership through certain media outlets. He started trying to show that he was taking national leadership when it was actually, as we've all commented on, the states taking that leadership. And I mentioned to you previously, the Morrison's number one scapegoat for his lack of leadership skills and the mistakes he's made is to blame federal institutions and laws. And the media has bought into this scapegoating the system and not the people behind the system. And I think that's why we haven't seen a drop in his approval ratings, because the media is protecting him by saying the whole time he's trying his best. You know, last week for me, um, you know, Margaret could probably comment on it more from her perspective. But last week, the headlines of the premiers undermining the Commonwealth in, in vaccination rollout, you know, Jeanette Young being an anti-vaxxer. I mean, it was just really, I thought Andrew Barr said it so lovely. It was just really unhelpful. Yeah. I don't think this is unique to Australia, but I do think we're looking at an increasingly partisan media. And, and I think that's distressing. It's one thing to have a sort of political bent. It's another thing to choose your own facts. Yes. And at its worst, we're veering towards the choose your own facts side of things. And yes, in this, it's very hard to overlook the dominance of the Murdoch press. It's, you know, it's an old story, not a new story at all, that we have one of the most concentrated media ownerships in the world. And I think we've seen that really play out in, to use that word, I'll pick up that word, unhelpful ways. It's been particularly noticeable here in Victoria. I'm actually thinking I'm going to give an anecdotal impression here Mm. and I would really love some media academics to do some proper quantitative research on this, to do some coding. But the way in which the Murdoch Press in particular, but not only the Murdoch Press, nine, Nine as well, I would say, reported Victoria's most recent lockdown compared to New South Wales' most recent lockdown Anecdotally, my impression is that the media is hugely biased against the Dan Andrews government and that Gladys has had an easy run, comparatively speaking. Now, it would take some proper quantitative research to say whether that anecdotal impression is right or not, but it's very hard to draw any conclusion other than it's party political. 
an anti-labour bias. Now, you know, maybe I'm wrong. As I say, I would love to see somebody actually do the work to to determine that. But one of the reasons uh, John Fain wrote a column sort of in which he had a dialogue with his good and bad self about how he felt about New South Wales going into lockdown and while, you know, I don't endorse his sentiments, I understand. I think a lot of Victorians felt that way. And it was because when we were in our long lockdown, it felt like the entire nation was basically, I don't know if I can say this word on a podcast, basically pissing on us. Uh, you can definitely say that. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, and there was a real resentment about that. And our own media, I mean, there is now a campaign in Melbourne against the Herald Sun with stickers and all that sort of thing. And now I don't know whether it's having any real impact or whether it's just in the inner suburbs or whatever. But, you know, there is a real anger at the way in which the media were felt not to be helpful through that long and awful crisis last winter. Yeah, I think it's true, although I, I also uh, pick up very strongly on social media and in some of that in some of that reaction, a misunderstanding of the role of media as well, because journalists' job is not to uh, not to simply communicate government policy. No, no, I agree with that. And, Mark. and, and, and there was, there was, I think you'd agree, uh, also a fair bit of misunderstanding of journalists' role at press conference, for for example, asking the premier or the acting premier in in, in, in through the earlier part of this year questions, you know, and sometimes you know asking them tough questions. And this was seen as running a campaign against oh, the look, government. I, and, I agree and, with it, Mark, but not entirely. Compare one of the Dan Andrews press conferences with one of the Gladys press conferences. There is a real qualitative difference. Now, I totally agree with you. Some of the crazy stuff on social media, you know, basically wanting journalists to join the I stand with Dan stands, yeah, you, know? Yeah. you know, obviously that's just ridiculous and people don't understand the role of journalism in that. But there has been a real difference in the way in which yeah. the media has dealt with the premier and you can see it in the atmosphere of the press conferences. Okay, okay, I, I accept mm. that. But, I mean, if you cast your mind back to the Gladys Berejiklian press conference about Daryl Maguire, which happened only toward mm. the end of last year, that was an extremely hostile grilling she got from yes, media about rightly that. rightly so, rightly so. Perhaps, perhaps. She wasn't even able to finish some of her answers, though, and, and it seemed to me to be, uh, you know, bordering on feral. Maybe. But, you know, I talking of, about the public health crisis. You know, I think, again, you know, we talk about the role of journalism. The truth is journalism has many roles. You know, Michael Shudson has laid out, you know, I think it was 10 reasons why we need non-lovable media. Mm. But one of them, and the very important one, is social empathy, yeah. being able to build, you know, community action and community cohesion. Certainly holding the powerful to account is part of them. But the key, the key touchstone is serving the community. And, you know, you hold power to account not only not for its own sake but in order to serve the community, in order to serve the, the notion of the public and the public interest. And I think, again, you know, we need some reflection around whether some of this hyper-partisan journalism, some of the, some of the sort of – I've called it performative watchdoggery, not <laughs> real watchdoggery, not actually holding to account, but looking as though you are on the live-streamed press conference. Yeah, you that's know, a think, very good point to make, I think yes. the Andrews, I think the Andrews government should rightly be held to account 
for the terrible state our public health infrastructure was in at the beginning of all this. And for the failures of contact tracing, which were so well, that's part quite of it. clearly obvious compared to Well, now South in Park. retrospect, I think, you know, the contact tracing was probably, now we understand how hard it is to keep this virus contained. I think we could say the contact tracing was the main reason we had a second wave. Yes. The, the security guards were also poorly managed. But, you know, that's a story of decades. It goes back to Kennett. But Andrews has certainly been in government for long enough to do it. He's a former health minister. But how many questions at the press conference were about, you know, decades of underfunding of public health? Hardly any. Mm. It was all about, oh, who chose to use the security guards? <laughs> um, yeah. And even now we've had a judicial inquiry which has forensically laid out how that decision not so much was made but was arrived at. Yes, you still almost see by journalists. default. Yes, exactly. And, you know, that's all been laid out. But you still see journalists harping on that without properly holding him to account. So I say it's performative watchdoggery, not real holding to account. Yes, it's a very, very good point. A final question without notice to you, Tracy. Can it be said, is there any research which can clarify this, whether federations, and I know these sorts of comparisons are extraordinarily problematic, but whether federations generally have handled the pandemic better than unitary states? Because of that ability, for example, to compartmentalise, to have government closer to the people, because obviously state governments are closer to their people than the national government? No, the research that's been done is comparing federations with federations. Yeah. So really, if you want to see whether your federation's doing well, and, and again, when we take a step outside of Australia, and we have published a paper where we compared Canada, the US, and Australia, there's been two or three in that special issue. And again, that's what's very interesting, how... You know, the medium has this doom and gloom depiction of, of how COVID's been managed in Australia. When we do compare the performance of Australian federal, federalism against other federations, it's outperformed. There's no doubt about no. it. And then as research, we try to figure out why it's outperformed. So the National Cabinet comes up as an intergovernmental mechanism. So the U.S. didn't have any intergovernmental mechanism. So even if the states were doing things right, and it, we can see, I think what's so fascinating about the data for the vaccine rollout in other federal countries where there isn't an overlapping jurisdiction, you can really see patterns as to why vaccination rates are higher in some states and provinces than others because we have the quantitative data. And in the US, we can really see that it's higher in democratic states and it's lower in the Republican South. So we can really see partisan patterns around yeah. vaccination hesitancy. But because there was no intergovernmental mechanism, which is a, a characteristic of presidential federal systems, you have real chaos, which is Brazil and the U.S. So the Brazil and the U.S. are the examples of federalism, presidentialism, no intergovernmental mechanisms, really divided bureaucracy, no cooperation, really disastrous outcomes at a national level. And then in the Westminster systems, we obviously have India and we have Australia and we have Canada. And Australia and Canada are very different, but they both had pretty high levels of intergovernmental cooperation and low levels of conflict. Canada had a little bit more because they never had to use their emergency powers. Uh, the prime minister never chose to use them. So that's why you had less coercion. Hmm. It was seen more as something that was more what we call federal provincial diplomacy, which is also very informal. And so, you know, Canada and Australia both had, for different reasons, really high levels of intergovernmental cooperation. And then again, when you look at the outcomes and you look at the results, Australia performed comparatively very well. However, and I add a however, if you look at the vaccination data, and it's been published time and time again, 
When you look at the vaccination rollout data, Australia is the lowest in the OECD, and they're also the lowest in comparison to other federations. I mean, Italy's at 30%. Now, I know everybody says, oh, but they had more COVID. Italy has the most complex, chaotic. I mean, <laughs> you want to see intergovernmental chaos and no centralized power. Look at look at federative arrangements in Italy. Yeah. And Mexico is up to 15%. Okay, so if these federations have been able to do it faster. We're, we're really facing big questions right now as to, again, now I think we see the more politics. We see blame shifting. We see avoidance. We see trying to claim control. Going back to data, I keep, you know, there's no data to really look at who's at fault. There's no data because we Commonwealth vaccinations, vaccinations given by GPs in the Commonwealth are aggregated as Australian Commonwealth output. And the only state level data we have is just for state hubs and vaccinations. So we can't even try to causally figure out what's causing it to be so slow. So obviously there's no published research comparing that right now because it's it's happening right now. But there is a question mark well, I'll there. tell you what's causing it to be so slow, lack of supply. That's the truth. And we know That's who's, the truth and we know that dare who, not speak its name. We know who is responsible for procurement, paying, yes. and supplying vaccinations in every federal country in the world, and it is a central government. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's been absolutely terrific having both of you on. We could keep going for ages. I've got several other questions I'd like to go to, particularly around uh, some aspects of the media and, and so forth, but we can't keep going forever. And so thank you very much, Tracy Beck-Fenwick and Margaret Simons been terrific having you on. Thank you. Nice to meet you both. Thanks for inviting me. We'll certainly be doing that again, and I look forward to that with great anticipation. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. I'm Mark Kenny. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.